All right, so let's start with chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Just these two verses, because they will kind of set a little transition between the, the passage of walking with, uh, with Christ in this path and how St. Paul continues to take a, a different train of thought. So in verse 7 and 8 he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Alright, so take a moment to just read that again. We'll take a second and then we'll talk about it. Okay, so a good question to ask here is this. What's the determining factor for receiving a certain measure of grace? Is it according to one's faith, for example, or or a certain quality, or is it a a prerequisite that you ought to have? What does St. Paul say here? is the determining factor for receiving a certain measure of grace. It's a gift from God or it's a gift from Christ given to us freely. Perfect. It's a gift, right? It's a gift from God and it's given freely, which has an implication. What do you think that implies, Hope? Well, the first thing I think is that it's not necessarily given freely. Christ paid the price for us, essentially. So it's our response, or at least I feel like part of it is our response of Him giving us that gift, of Him surrendering Himself, His will to God to die for us. Very good. Very good. So it's it's basically his love, his sacrifice, his provisions, right? And then our response is to invest in those gifts, right? And so it's not a matter of a a certain prerequisite that I have that will warrant that I get this gift or that gift. And a lot of times we get into this... Um, this dangerous mindset where we think that I have this gift because of um, this specific quality that warranted this gift to come to me or I don't have this gift because um, I'm not like that person or whatever. And so... St. Paul could have emphasized anything else. He could have said that it's given according to your faith or according to your, your love for God or whatever it may be. But he says it's a gift from Christ. Okay, So St. John Chrysostom explains it in a beautiful way. He doesn't say according to each one's faith so that he may not induce despondency in those who have not received the great gifts. Rather, what does he say? According to the measure of Christ's gift. The truly essential things, he says, are common to all. Baptism, salvation by faith, having God as Father and partaking of the same Spirit. If someone has more in grace, feel no resentment, for his task is greater too. Okay, so we can take a lot from the way St. John Chrysostom explains this. For starters, there's no need to 
to feel down or despondent because I don't have something another person has. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I'm unworthy or it doesn't mean that I am less valuable in God's eyes and that's why I don't have this gift. And that's a lot of times what the devil will plant in our minds, you know, to say, you know, you're not valuable, you don't have this or that, and it, it breaks people's spirits. But that's not the case, right? And so he reminds us too that we all have the essential gifts, right? We all have the gift of salvation. We all have the gift of new life, baptism, having God as our Father. Those essentials are ours. Where it comes to the specifics, that's where we're going to have diversities, right? And then the little cherry on top, he says, by the way, if someone has more grace, don't forget that his task is greater. <laughs> so if anything, remember that too much is given, much of him will be required. So there's no need to, to dwell on what I'm lacking. I just focus on what I have and how I can invest in what I do have. Now, if I think of everything in my life as a gift, and I see the, the qualities that other people have as a gift. And it's all just from God's goodness. Of course, we're not ignoring the fact that God works with our, our willingness to invest in those gifts. And He gives us more as we are faithful. Right? I'm not ignoring that. But we take the premise as God's goodness. Not, now, if I take that and I walk through my life and I see people having more than me, for example, and I'm jealous or envious from a quality that someone else has, what does that really say? What does that really mean? Like, What's at the root or the heart of that? that feeling of envy or jealousy that I might have. Remember, take this premise in context. Everything that we said, that those gifts come from, from God, right? So now, how can I look at the, the, the root of my jealousy or my envy whenever I see someone has... I see that someone has more than me. Ungratefulness. Okay, ungratefulness towards towards who or what? Towards the gifts that I that God has blessed me with. It's essentially like you bless me with gifts, but I don't really think much of them, right? So that's why my eyes on something or what somebody else has. Okay, very good. So I'm inconsiderate of what I do have, right? But if you even dig a little bit deeper and you always keep in mind the origin of these gifts, it changes the way you look at who has what. Now, if, if I look at the gifts I have and I look at the gifts that you have, my jealousy or my envy is not necessarily about what's in my hands or what's in your hands, but now the offense is towards the giver himself. Right? Because that jealousy or that envy is directed towards God. I basically tell him, I don't like that you didn't give me this. Or how come you gave that person such and such gift? And so the offense is not necessarily directed towards what you might have or what I might lack. But it's really a question of God's provisions. And so at the very root of it, there's a lack of faith 
or trust or understanding in God's provisions. And if I trust in God and I'm faithful to God, I realize that He's a wise provider. He gives to the one who can invest this or that because of His own wisdom. And He gives me what I have because of His own wisdom. And I can always keep that in mind. It guards my inclination to fall into this jealousy or this envy. Because I trust in God. And so my trust in Him, my faithfulness to Him, always keeps me in check. Right? And then, not only that, but it allows me to appreciate what another person may have. Because I see it as coming from the same source or the same origin that loves me and cares for me. Right? The same one who loved me and died for me in the cross is the same one who's giving that person this gift or that gift. And it makes me even appreciate what that person might have a little more because I see that now this is something that can be used for the edification of the whole body. Whether other people are faithful with the gifts that they have or not, I mean, that's not my place to say or even think about. Right? So I should rejoice in those gifts or, or those qualities knowing that they're for the edification of the whole body. Right? Any comments or questions there? St. Paul is going to talk a little bit more about the diversity of the gifts and the, the roles that God has given each of us in this body or this intricate network within the body of Christ and how it all works together. And he'll emphasize that a little bit later. In verse 8 he says, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And this just reminds us that he basically he basically prevented what was in our way from stopping us, which was death, sin, the devil. And there's an interesting play with this phrase, there's an interesting play with words when he says, he led captivity captive. It's almost like saying, he, he imprisoned prison, right? Or, or he, he put to death death. You know, that's the sort of language that you see here that having abolished what was separating us from God, which is death, he gave us life and he gave us those gifts in, instead. And now this kind of links us to this next segment. And he'll, he'll explain a little bit more what that really means from that, that thought as he gets into the next section. So let's go from verse 9 to 13. And if you still have any questions, I think it'll probably be answered in this next section. If not, we'll take time to talk about it. Alright, so he says from verse 9, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is he who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
Alright, so that was a lot, but this section is really all connected. So take a moment to, to read it closely and we'll talk about it. Alright, so from verse 9, let's just try to clarify what he's talking about from the start. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? So what's St. Paul talking about with ascended and descended and the lower parts of the earth? Okay, perfect. So he's he's basically stating the the whole process of the the, the descent of Christ into Hades and his ascension. But he takes it from a very interesting perspective because he's proving the ascension by pointing to the the necessity of a descent. Right? Because he's trying to explain the fact that he ascended. So St. Paul says, in saying he ascended, what else could it mean? Because he's the most high. Like, how can the highest ascend? (laughs) Right? So, if Christ ascended, he must have descended from the start. Right, and not just coming from heaven to earth, and that's a, a, a remarkable descent. But he descended not just into our hum, human existence, but he descended, descended into death itself and into Hades. Right, and he went so far as to descend into death and Hades. And so he went from the highest to the lowest so that he can bring us up with him to the highest. Alright? So, St. John Chrysostom says, the lower parts of the earth here means death. And why does he mention this region here? What sort of captivity is he speaking of? That of the devil. He has taken captive the tyrant the devil and death, the curse and sin. Okay? Now, this is obviously in contrast to everyone who has descended into death prior to Christ. Because before God gave us salvation through His death and His resurrection and His ascension, everyone who descended had just like a one-way ticket to Hades, and that's it. (laughs) Everyone kind of descended to stay, even the righteous. Right? But for Christ, He says that He led captivity captive. He basically put death to death, or almost like He destroyed destruction, (laughs) so that after His descent, He ascended. And that's essentially what gives us new life, so that He could take us up from the depths of our sins. Okay? And that's the purpose 
of his ascension. He even says at the very end of verse 10, let's go to it right there. He who descended is he who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might what? Fill all things. That's the purpose. Purpose is to take us up with him and to fill us with himself. Alright? That's the purpose. Any comments or questions there before we move on to the middle section of this passage? Well, can this also explain um, you know, the, the reason why Christ ascended is that He could send us the Holy Spirit to work, to give the gifts for us to be able to you know, work, uh, for the Holy Spirit to work in us, essentially, whether it's the service or... So that's like, maybe it's not necessarily... St. Paul's not, not calling it out here, but is that something that is fair to say? I think so. Even the Orthodox Study Bible points to that because he's going to get into the gifts that he sends us and the gifts do come from the Spirit and we know that without his ascension there's no way for him to send us the Spirit because he's the one who goes to take the Spirit from the Father and to deliver the Spirit to us. Although I think he, he does point to that but not necessarily like in, in an explicit sense. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be wrong to explain it that way. I don't know if it's really what he wants to emphasize, but yes, his ascension is always linked with Pentecost and the Spirit delivering those gifts to us. So we could we could definitely make that connection. So speaking of those gifts. In verse 11, okay, we see that his gifts distinguish certain roles in the church. Right? He says apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Right? So in verse 11, when he speaks of building up the body of Christ, who's entrusted... Actually, no, that's verse 12. When he speaks of building up the body of Christ. Who's entrusted with this task? Is it the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers? I think it's all. Everybody has a different role for the edifying of the entire church. Okay, but look a little bit. You, you are right. I mean, everyone does have a, a specific role, but he actually wants to emphasize... A, a certain group to take on this role. The disciples. The disciples? Well, not necessarily. He's not even mentioning them in this, in this passage. What, what are these eminent figures that are the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what are they directly accomplishing here? The very beginning of verse 12. They're to equip the saints. Right? They are to equip the saints. So that the saints, he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's not to divorce the roles of the apostles and the prophets and evangelists. But he wants to emphasize that the building up of the church is not reduced to the clergy or like upper management. (laughs) Right? He says the upper management is equipping the saints. The saints 
are the, the members of the church. In, in beginning Corinthians and elsewhere in, in the Pauline letters, he calls the members of the church the saints. Right? This is the laity. This is the congregation itself. So, the, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, are all to equip the people of the church to build it up. Like It's almost like you think of building it from the bottom up, not from the top down. Okay, so let's look at how Father Lawrence Farley explains it, and I think it'll make a little more sense. He says, This is an important distinction, for it means that it is the saints, all the faithful laity, who perform this work of service and upbuilding, not just the clergy. The job of the clergy is to equip the saints to do this work, not to do the work instead themselves. You see the distinction here? It might seem like hair-splitting, but it's actually a very powerful emphasis to realize that building up of the church is not reduced to what the Pope, the Bishop, the clergy, or the upper management all do. But it's actually centered in the saints of the church, those who are faithful members of the church. And that's us, right? That's every single person that's listening in this Bible study. That means every member of the church. If you consider yourself to be faithful, then you are responsible for building up the church. That your responsibility is to be equipped by the clergy and everybody that's instructing you so that eventually you accomplish that task. Does that make sense? Some nods? <laughs> I don't like that, Abuna. I wanted you to do all the work. <laughs> okay. Now, skip to the, the latter part of this little section. In verse 13, you see, St. Paul speaks of the ultimate goal. And we alluded to this a week or two ago. But here it's clear, right? What's the ultimate goal or purpose of all this work? Like building up the church to do what? To accomplish what? There's no rocket science here. You could literally just read the very end of this verse. I just want to make sure that we really stress this before we move on. Because we got to know what the real goal is. What, what's the real purpose at hand? Look at, look at the end of 13. Fullness of Christ. That's it. The fullness of Christ. To have this maturity, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like that's a mouthful. <laughs> that means I become Christ. That's the goal. Everything can actually be reduced to that. I can reduce every single goal in my spiritual life to the fullness of Christ. To the maturity of this, this man, Christ. Alright. Any questions before we move on to the next part? Okay, so let's take a look at the next three verses. From 14 to 16. He says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, 
by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. All right. Take a moment to read that one more time to yourself, and we'll meditate on it. Alright, so St. Paul uses very interesting imagery here to explain what this maturity should look like. Or actually like what this maturity should not look like. (laughs) So, how does he put it? What does he say? That we shouldn't be following the wind essentially it's where you're supposed to be rooted I feel like it's the point that he's getting at exactly exactly that you shouldn't be tossed back and forth by the wind and it's almost like this imagery of a leaf just blowing in the wind someone that has no stability like Hope just mentioned someone that's not rooted okay he says so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So, in contrast, what does he promote? He says, rather, rather what? What does he say? So instead of being unstable, you would expect this stability to... To have a certain look to it, how does he describe describe the contrast of this instability of being tossed back and forth? He says what? Rather what? Speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Very good. It's almost like this is what he says is the opposite of being unstable or having no roots, having... No stability. The exact opposite of that, to be rooted, is to speak the, the, the truth in love. Okay, now, if we dig a little bit deeper into this, it's interesting that there's actually a, a part that's misleading in this translation. Because... The real emphasis of what St. Paul says is actually missing if we read it the same way that we see this translation. Because the translation says, rather speaking the truth in love. Okay? The Greek word for truth is aletheia. Okay? The word that's used here is aletheo, which is actually a verb. Okay? So if you were to translate this literally, you would have to like think of a verb form of truth, which is like true thing or to do truth. It's almost like he's saying, but rather do truth in love. Or, or you can say, rather true thing in love. There's actually nothing mentioned here about speaking. Now, doing the truth or, or enacting that truth or truthing if you were to actually make up a word can come through words, can come through speaking, but that's not the emphasis here. Okay? 
So, there's a lot to dwell on here. That truthing or doing truth is an activity. It's an action. Right? We sometimes reduce it to to speaking. And I think it's very misleading to just look at this translation the way that, it, that it's said. And we might even reduce it further to say that it's something you simply have. Not, not only is it misleading to say that it's something you say or, or truth is something that must be verbalized, but you say, I, ha- I have the truth. I have truthful thoughts, right? As if it's something passive. It's something that doesn't require an action. But th- there's a-, a predicative verb here, which emphasizes doing something. Okay? So, again, I don't want it, I don't want us to always think of this concept as, as something passive, something that requires even words, because it's not about words, it's not about what you say, but it's about how you live and how you, you, you act. You do truth. You do truth. You enact truth. You walk in truth. And we mentioned this a lot when we studied the, the first epistle of St. John, right? He says, abiding in truth or walking in the truth is not something passive, okay? Father Bishoy Kamal actually says, the world is not in need of more words or sermons. It's in need of Christ. And, and we want to sometimes just bring truth to the, word, to the world and we try to uh, reduce that whole process to just words. And again, words are important, but like St. Augustine says, preach and if need be, use words. But what leads is the life, the actions. What leads is how we carry ourselves, what we do. Okay? Now, if we think of these two concepts, truth and love, I want to just meditate on this relationship a little bit. How do you guys think that these two work together, hand in hand? I know it's a vague question, but I think there's a lot to be said about how this intricate relationship of truth and love work together. How do you see this relationship working together? I think they both abide in Christ, right? Because God is love and God is truth, right? So without one can't function without the other. Um, because if you love somebody, you're leading to the truth, right? Um, you can't, you can't be, you can't say I love somebody then lie to them or lead them down the wrong path. Um, and you can't be truthful if you don't, you know, have the love of Christ in you um, hmm. uh, to be able to tell the truth. Um, to... That's amazing because I love how, you, how I love how you emphasize that the two can't work apart from each other. And we, we're fooled to think that one is more important than the other. You know, I don't think we go as far as to say this is what matters and the other one doesn't matter. But sometimes we think, oh, right now, um, truth is just going to have to come at the expense of love. Like this person, they stepped out of line and they need to hear it. <laughs> They're going to get the truth out of me. And I'm just going to give them a piece of my mind. And hey, it's all truth, but I tell them exactly 
how much of an idiot they are in this and that. And I, and I say, oh, well, that's just the truth. Or at the, at the other extreme where I, I just love to the extent of complacency, right? And I know this is a sensitive topic, but let's say there's a march for the LGBTQ movement, right? And I have nothing but love for the LGBTQ movement and nothing but love for the community and nothing but love for every minority, whoever it may be, right? But what truth does that imply whenever I'm standing there walking with them? What does that say that I believe, right? Does it say that I just love these people or does it say a little bit more that might compromise the truth? Does it say that I'm okay with this lifestyle? Does it say that we can normalize a, a life that is opposed to what God taught us? Does it say that we should condone a certain sin? Right? That's just one example. And again, it's controversial and there may be different takes on it, but the point is, my love for someone should never be at the expense of truth. And my, my truth should never be at the expense of love. Okay, when those two are together, it's like a beautiful little marriage. All right? Okay, any comments or questions there? If your wife asks you how she looks and whether this dress makes her look fat, always go with love. Trust me. Not that I ever worry about that because Marina always looks good in everything she wears, but <laughs> if you, <laughs> you want my advice, just go with love. Aside from that, you can try to make both work together. <laughs> All right. Now, what's the purpose of doing truth in love? Or if we're supposed to just go with this translation, rather speaking the truth in love for what? He says, don't be like children, they're unstable, but rather do the truth in love. For what? What's the purpose? Grow up in every way into Him. Perfect. It's for us. It's for our own growth. So, it's almost like ironic that he says, or at least according to this translation, he says, speaking the truth in love, but the purpose is for our growth. You think of speaking to somebody for their sake, right? Or you love somebody, you, you walk in truth in loving a person, to give them something, to edify them. But he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ. So the purpose is our own growth. The truth that we walk in love is for us. It's not to convert people. It's not to preach or to evangelize. That comes as a product. That comes as a consequence of our own growth. Because the more we are confirmed in the truth, the more we radiate that truth. And the more we're confirmed in love, the more we radiate that love. But we have to grow in truth and in love before thinking our objective is to make others grow. Because... We're fooled into thinking that sometimes. We think, oh, I want to, you know, help this person or do that. And we have this God complex that we think that, like, we're the Savior, you know. 
But again, the purpose is for us. Okay, now, in verse 16, St. Paul makes a beautiful connection between the head and the body and the connection between each member of the body and how all of those pieces work together. Okay, it's all just like one beautiful unit. So, Father Lawrence explains how each member contributes to the integrity of this unit. So, take a look at what he says. We all together, through our relationships, one with another, give form to the body and supply it with what it needs to move and grow. We each make our own contribution to the whole through our relationships and mutual service, whether by exalted service such as that of apostles or prophets or less prominent forms of ministry. We all contribute to the overall function of the body so that it builds itself in love. Okay? So it reminds us that we all have an integral role. And it's easy to say, oh, I'm not the priest. Or it's easy to say, I don't have this talent. Or I'm not really valuable. Or I'm not an important part of the puzzle. Right? But no matter which piece of the puzzle you are, without you, the puzzle is incomplete. <laughs> you can be the very little corner piece of the puzzle. The very, very, very corner. But if you spend all this time working and putting together this puzzle, and then there's that one piece missing, you're going to lose your mind because you put all this work into it and then it's still not complete. So we complete each other in different ways. And, and the reason God gave us different gifts is so that we can benefit from one another. And the very worst thing we can do is belittle our role. We do that so often and not only is it crippling to our own life, but it's crippling to the whole body of Christ. When I belittle myself, I'm harming everyone around me. Or if I confide in Christ, if I confide in His grace, His love, the gifts that He's given me, no matter how little they might be, I invest in those gifts and I not only benefit myself, but I benefit everyone who's around me. Alright? Any questions or comments before we move on to the next part? Alright, so let's go to 17 to 19. So he says, Now this I affirm and witness in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. Alright, so take a minute to read that and we'll talk about it. All right, so before we actually get into digging into this little passage, just a side note that whenever St. Paul begins this section, says, now this I affirm and witness in the Lord, 
the witness that St. Paul attributes himself here, in Greek it's martyromai, right, which comes from the same root word as martyr. Okay? So a martyr simply means witness. Although now we, intrib- we attribute this word to mean someone who has witnessed with their blood, someone who has laid down their life for Christ. But if this was translated literally, verse 17 would say, Now this I affirm, and I am martyred in the Lord. Because essentially he is to say that he is witnessing. Okay, although now we recognize that the word takes a different context. But that's just a little side note to keep, to keep in mind. That witness is the same word as martyr because the martyrs are the ones who truly witnessed to Christ, truly witnessed to their faith, and it was at the, the price or the cost of their own blood. All right, now, what's St. Paul warning the Ephesians about? Very good. Very good. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Right? Now, in warning them to avoid living as the Gentiles, he lists a few problems that the Gentiles have. Right? Let's just simply put everything on this list. First is what? Futility of mind. Okay, then what? A darkened understanding. Very good. Then what? This one's tricky. It says, alienated from the life of God because of what? What's the real problem? Ignorance. Ignorance, very good. So, futility of mind. Darkened in their understanding and ignorance. And that's essentially what causes their alienation. Okay? And then number four is what? Their hardness of heart. And essentially, we can even reduce all of that to this fourth problem. Because he says all of that is due to their hardness of heart. Right? So it all traces down to a hard heart. Okay? But a lot can be said about each one of these problems. You know, the, the futility of their minds. They have useless minds. Their minds are not productive. They're not dwelling on spiritual things. And we got to ask ourselves if we're guilty of that sometimes. You know, maybe I'm burnt out and I come home after a long day working or the kids are driving me crazy and instead of giving my mind a break to dwell on something spiritual, my mind is just futile, empty, useless. I watch the news or I stroll through Facebook and social media and my mind is (laughs) even more distant from God. And the, the darkened understanding, again, is something I need to ask myself if, if I'm guilty of that. Because a lot of times, I, I may condone my lack of understanding. And I don't study, and I don't listen to sermons, and I don't ask the priest or the servants or other people in my life to explain something to me. And so my understanding remains darkened because... I don't care to approach the light and to be illumined, to pray for God to enlighten my mind. And I'm just fine with whatever little I know. And I condone everything else that I don't know. But it's important to grow in spiritual, real, practical knowledge, right? And understanding. And that's connected to the the third issue whenever he says that 
they're alienated from God because of their ignorance, a lot of times we don't even know that we're, we're lacking so much of, of our foundational knowledge and, and theology and real studying. And, and we say, oh, theology, that's not for me. You know, studying the fathers, the patristics, that's not for me. That's for like the theologians or the seminarians or the priests, the bishops, you know, and I'm okay with my, my ignorance. Or I might not even recognize it because I don't care to actually look at what I'm lacking and to look at what I may not know. Now, again, we said that this could be reduced to the fourth issue, which is the hardness of hearts. And I think almost everything in our life can be reduced to this. It's, it's our hypocrisies, it's our pride, it's our resistance to God's work, it's whenever I know I offended somebody, but I don't want to just humble myself to go and apologize. It's whenever I, I know that, you know, the, the Spirit is calling me to go back to repentance and to confess to my priest right now, it's just a simple phone call away to call my priest and say, Abuna, I want to confess. But my heart might be too hard. My, my, my heart's too, too hard to, to admit that I need to repent. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But almost everything in our spiritual life, all the problems, that, that, that callousness that St. Paul says, they've become callous. And they're just greedy they're, they're lustful. It's like a spiritual downward spiral because of that hardness. But if I truly repent and soften my heart and have the humility to admit, God, I, I, I need you. I'm going to set aside my own opinions. I'm going to set aside my own thoughts and just submit to you then that wall is broken down. The Spirit starts to really work in my life to, to break away from that darkness and the way that the Gentiles might be living. Alright? So from this, he's going to go on to, to talk about how they ought to live in contrast. Before, before we get into that, I just want to make sure that everything we spoke about is 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 clear i'll just take a moment to have to answer any questions we won't have time to actually talk about the next section but i want to make sure before we jump into this next week that everything makes sense you know at at least in a general sense Any comments, questions? Okay, very good. So let's bow our heads to pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, Lord, for, for speaking to us. We thank you for condescending, O Lord, to, to reduce your, your own words to our own human language, for your, your own words to be reduced to what, what we have on paper here. And we know that what you have to say to us, what the Spirit says to us is so far beyond what any language on earth can contain or what any words... In, in the Bible or any letter can contain because your, your, your spirit is, is beyond our understanding. And we thank you for, for descending into our own limitations, O Lord, to reduce yourself to that extent and giving us the scriptures. And I pray that we, 
never take that for granted that we continue to hold on to your words and we hold on to this gift, this priceless gift, the scriptures that you have given us that we may eat your words daily, O Lord, that we may live by your words and that we may act according to the words that you have given us. Unto you do our glory, O Lord, and we ask you to hear us as we pray with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now the love of God the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior Jesus Christ, the gift and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.